May it please the court, my name is Penny Helgren. I'm with a law firm of Brown and Carlson. I represent the Minnesota Vikings Football Club and the Minnesota Workers' Compensation Assignments Plan. Their claims are administered by Berkeley Net. We're here today to address a number of issues with regard to the Allapatti Noga matter. The first issue is whether the employee sustained a Gillette injury in the form of concussion, brain injury, and or neurocognitive disorder in December of 1992, which was the last time that he played football for the Minnesota Vikings. Secondly, whether the WorkCom Court of Appeals erred when they made the finding that notice was provided to the employer through their attorney, myself, in a doctor's report from a Dr. Froyan in 2004 that uh, basically uh, concerned orthopedic injuries uh, that Mr. Noga had admittedly sustained during the period of time that he played for the Vikings. In that report, uh, Dr. Froyan also discussed is issues with regard to the employee experiencing blackouts and headaches. And the third issue is the issue of the statute of limitations and whether the statute was um, satisfied prior to a Gillette injury occurring in December of 1992. The issue concerning the statute of limitations I'm going to address first, it's the most important issue here today. The statute pursuant to MS section 176.151 indicates that an employee must bring an action or proceeding within three years after a written report of injury or six years after the accident date. This begins to run once the employee has sufficient information of the nature of the injury or disease, its seriousness and probable compensability. In this case, the claimant wants you to accept the argument that the statute can be satisfied prior to an injury occurring, and that is not the law. This is a de novo standard that the court must address. You cannot have the statute satisfied prior to an injury occurring. In this case, when the case was pled in 2015, the employee alleged a number of specific work-related head injuries. He also alleged a December of 1992 Gillette injury. The compensation judge denied all of the claimed specific injuries and only made a finding with regard to a December of 1992 Gillette injury. Counsel, I agree with you that the test for starting the running of the statute of limitations is when the employee had sufficient information of the nature of the injury or disease its seriousness and probable compensability. What's the employer's position as to the date, the latest date when the statute of limitations began to run? The latest date would be in 2004, which is when this, the Court of Appeals found that notice was provided because the standards are pretty similar when it comes to notice and the statute of limitations. Clearly, clearly the facts of this case all of the evidence presented, especially the medical evidence, shows that he had knowledge of major issues with regard to brain injury, concussions. He had many symptoms of blackouts, uh, nausea, headaches, memory loss, well before 2009, which would be, you know, because then he didn't file until, until 2015. And has 171.176.151 sub D deals with occupational disease. Has Correct. this case ever, ever been pleaded or litigated as an occupational disease? No, it wasn't, Your Honor. It wasn't. And I, I, I would like to discuss that for just a moment. 
in essence, really, the employee should have filed this as an occupational disease case, but he did not. And I believe the reason that it was not pled that way was for a number of reasons. Number one, with regard to an occupational disease case, just like with asbestos cases, normally it's the last substantial contributing factor that would be on the hook for, for the benefits. And in this case, due to the fact that Mr. Noga became a free agent uh, in 1992 and went on to play for two additional NFL teams and then played for the Arena League, which is no longer in existence, he, he did not do that. And we cannot bring those other out-of-state employers into Minnesota anyway. So that's one reason I believe that he did not file an occupational disease claim. Secondly, the standard um, and the burden for an occupational disease claim is much higher. You have to prove direct and proximate cause whereas for um, a personal injury or Gillette injury, you need, only prove whether, you need only prove that it is a substantial contributing factor in the claim of disability. And thirdly, the statute of limitations with regard to occupational disease is three years, not six years. So I believe that the reason he did not file it as an occupational disease claim was because the burden was too high, but it should have been. With regard to the statute of limitations, the employee wants you to agree that a proceeding occurred prior to the Gillette injury culminating in December of 1992. The testimony of Mr. Nogo was that he was provided Advil or Tylenol and a place to rest or lie down. Um, it, it, he stated in very, at various times in the training room, um, when he was on buses, when he was on airplanes, in a number of, on a number of occasions. But the medical records do not substantiate any of these claims. His testimony, although it was found to be credible by Let's the... Let's assume for the moment that, that um, you know, the, one of the arguments they make, and I think it has some merit, is uh, his physical condition makes it very difficult for him to be an accurate historian. Let's, let's assume for the moment that that the facts are as he, as he represents them. He was offered aspirin. He was asked to lay down. Um, does that um, vitiate your defense here? No. Uh, and if not, why not? And what case would or cases would you point to on that? Well, it does not due to the fact that there was no proceeding. He, he claims, and again, he was found to be credible, but again, we are taking the position that Clearly, he wasn't a good historian, and his testimony was inconsistent throughout the hearing, and that is well documented in the, in the transcript. Um, our position is that the training room was a service provided to, for the employees to help with daily afflictions. It was an open-door policy where an employee could present for any sort of ailment. It was not a medical facility, and in this but let's go to the legal argument, and why, why is that not a proceeding as they allege that it is? And, and what authority would you have for that? Well, we, we compare this case to the Dixon case, which uh, is a Vikings case. There, there are two Vikings cases that came down um, in 2007 and 2008. One is Dixon and one is Myers. And I would like to talk about both of them because they're, they're, they're very important cases. Our case is very similar to the Dixon case. Um, it was a case where the employee was alleging a Gillette injury many, many years later, and the compensation judge in the Court of Appeals determined that 
there was, um, even after a Gillette injury, um, he never returned to the training room, and the treatment that he allegedly received was prior to the Gillette injury. Let, let, me, let me take you to uh, our jurisprudence, um, can, and I, I appreciate that uh, Dixon and Myers might provide some guidance here, but looking to our jurisprudence, is there authority, um, but, but what's the state of the law? Does, does it support you? Does it support opposing, the opposing side? The state of the law with regard to statute of limitations supports the employer and insurer's position. The legislature proscribed that there is an intent for the statute of limitations, and the DeMars case discusses that there is a time period within which to there is a time within which one must bring a workers' compensation claim, which is six years. Clearly, he did not do that in this case. He waited for 23 years to bring a claim. But counsel, that, that just puts us back to, I mean, everyone agrees that he, that he didn't meet the statute of limitations as it is technically defined. He didn't meet that six-year term. The question is whether or not this falls into uh, whether this is a proceeding or not. And, and so I guess I still want you to go back to that because I think what, what uh, Mr. Noga's counsel will say is that, well, this was very much a proceeding in that you were, the Vikings were providing, yes, it was quote unquote merely Advil or Tylenol, but that was, if you will, the standard of care back then for concussion. And so they were, or for head injuries of this type. And so they were arguably providing treatment in much the same way that the training staff was providing treatment to Mr. Myers and, and putting the splint on his hand. Um, the treatment was minimal as we would think about it today. I think everyone would agree that given what we now know about concussions, um, the treatment was, was minimal. But, but at the time, I'm not sure that that makes it any less treatment at the time. But we also have to look at the medical evidence, Your Honor. And the medical evidence that was, that was contemporaneous and in existence did not provide any evidence at all that even that minimal treatment was provided. That just is based upon the self-serving testimony well, of Mr. Well, but then you Noga. go back to Justice Anderson's point. We go back to Justice Anderson's point that um, the comp judge found that Mr. Noga was credible. And as you well know, we defer to, to that credibility, credibility finding on behalf of the comp judge with the, which the Court of Appeals affirmed. And so what do we do with that? Or maybe go back to, as Justice Anderson said, let's assume for the moment, as I think we should and, and must, given our standard review, that, that Mr. Noga was credible. He was credible. So he, got, he, was, he was given aspirin and Advil and... and he was found credible, but he is not reliable, and the he was not a poor, he was not a good historian. And his testimony he has dementia. His testimony he has dementia. I'm sorry. He has dementia, so he, of course he's not reliable, as all of the doctors. But there are a number of other recognize. conditions that play a role in Mr. Counsel. I just want to go back to the law, <laughs> um, and I want to ask you about LiveGuard. Um, our case, LiveGuard. Correct. Um, and I'm in LiveGuard. So, so as I understand the state of the law, getting back to Justice Anderson's question, the our court has recognized that when the employer pays a bill, a medical bill, that's a proceeding. The WCCA has recognized that when an employer provides medical treatment, that's a proceeding. As I understand it, our court has never held that when an employer provides medical treatment, which is what happened here, according to the employee's allegations. We've never said 
that that's a proceeding. And in LiveGuard, we seem to suggest that, the, that what's relevant is why is the employer providing the treatment? Are they providing the treatment because they recognize they're responsible for this injury? Or are they providing the treatment because that's what they provide for everyone? So talk to us a little bit about LiveGuard. Right, and with in, in our case, LiveGuard is applicable, Your Honor, and the reason is that because there is no evidence that any specific medical bill was paid. All we have is the employee's testimony that he was provided Advil or Tylenol in a place to rest. Do, that does is, the record reflect anything about why the Vikings provided Advil and the treatment that Mr. Noga is alleging they provided. Is there any evidence about the intent of the Vikings in doing that? No, there is not. On uh, there is not. And didn't, what happened? Uh, excuse me, counsel. Yes. On that precise point, didn't the comp judge make a finding that the trainers were there to to treat the uh, professionals for their football-related injuries so that they could stay on the field? They're, they were there for a number of reasons, but you still have to give notice. You still have to indicate that if an injury occurred, that an injury occurred. And in this case... We're talking about proceeding here. We Notice, I grant you, is a, a, a separate topic, but I believe the comp judge found that they were there to give medical treatment so that these players could stay on the field. But in the Dixon case, the court held, the same court, the WCCA court, held that the training room was a service provided to help with daily afflictions and to help with work-related and non-work-related issues. And in our case, you know, if you look at Myers, that gentleman had a specific injury. He was provided by the training room personnel. He was uh, a, pre a prepared cast, a fiberglass cast was was prepared for him. He was splinted and taped, and he was having problems they specifically knew, and because of the use of using that cast, he eventually had what kind of a consequential injury. And so they found that the statute had been satisfied. But then in Dixon, which is very similar to the facts here, in Dixon, he alleged a Gillette injury many, many years later, and the court stated that no, there wasn't a Gillette injury, and that the training room was just that. It was an open door policy. And if the court allows a proceeding in this case or indicates that, that you can have the statute satisfied prior to an injury being uh, an injury being provided, they, they give us notice, then we're just in a situation where anytime they receive any treatment, then it just abrogates the statute of limitations. In this case, what the employee wants you to accept is the fact that he claims that he had an, a Gillette injury in 1992 when he, he just left the Vikings and went on and played. There's no ascertainable event. There's no change in his condition. He didn't lose any time from work. He didn't have any restrictions. He didn't treat with any physicians. He didn't modify his activities at all, and he continued to play for seven more years. Then the employee wants you to accept, an, an, an accept as well that in 2004, when, and let me just back up here a minute, in approximately 2001, he did file a workers' compensation claim for a number of orthopedic injuries, all of which were documented in the medical records, the, treat, the, the training notes and the treatment notes from Dr. Fisher. So there are contemporaneous medical records that do document that he had treatment for a number of orthopedic injuries, but there's nothing, there's nothing in the record that discusses anything with regard to giving of Tylenol, Advil, place to lie down, nothing with regard to 
alleged concussions. Can, can I come back to something you said earlier in response to Justice Lillehug's question? And that was you said the latest the statute of limitations could run was in 2004. But, I mean, the way I read the statute, it, it's six years from the date of the accident. So why would 2004 be of any relevance? I mean, that's well, long after six years after the date of the accident, right? Well, that's just when the court found that he, the court found that he gave notice, and the standards are, are similar. They are similar. But, but, but what, I, is, what is the accident here? The accident would have been his, would have had to have ended in 1992, right? Because correct. he didn't. And that, that's, our, that's our position that the statute began to run at that point in time. So what do we do with this situation of someone where you have an injury that emerges that you don't really know what's going to emerge until six years after the statute of limitations runs. So he didn't know in 1998 that he was going to develop dementia and had these circumstances, right? So what are we supposed to do with that? Just Is, is a person in that situation just out of luck? Well, in this I case... I think that's what the heart of this case is about. I understand. I understand that. And, and really, if you look at the history of this case, he testified that when he stopped playing in 1999, he was having memory issues. Okay, let's give him the fact that he, didn't, he wasn't evaluated until 2004. He had an attorney at that time. When he filed his claim for workers' compensation benefits for the orthopedic claims, he had an attorney. He, that attorney referred him to Dr. Froyan. That was the report that was attached that discussed the orthopedic injuries and also discussed... But that would have already been too late because that was six years after he left the Vikings. Right? Maybe not too late to sue other teams, arguably, I suppose, but... Well, it, it is too late, but even if you give him that, even if you give him from 2004 that that's when the statute began to run, he still didn't file it in a timely fashion. And the I, reason... I don't, I don't dispute that. I just, I'm just struggling with how we do that. The other question I just wanted to ask on this issue of providing medical treatment, because this court has, ne this would be what the, what Mr. Noga is asking for, from what I can tell, is an extension of our jurisprudence, because we've never gone beyond you have to pay the benefits to another medical provider. Providing benefits, providing medical treatment to some, I don't think we've ever held that that is a proceeding. But I look at the statute, so the statute says actions are proceedings by an injured employee to determine or recover to secure compensation. And compensation is defined as all benefits. And then the statute in 176.135 defines one of the benefits is employee, employer shall furnish any medical treatment as may be necessary. So why is the providing of medical treatment, it seems like just from a pure statutory language interpretation that the providing of medical treatment is a benefit. And, you know, we are twisting the words actions and proceedings, but we've done that for decades, frankly. So based on our jurisprudence that talks about if you provide a medical benefit, then this is a proceeding. How do you square that with, the, how do you square your position with 176.135 that just says the employer has to provide medical treatment for an injury? But the question is, what is medical treatment? And in this case, providing Advil or Tylenol and a place to lay down is not considered medical treatment. That's our position. And he never gave notice to anyone about these injuries. Even though he claimed he did, there's nothing in the records. Why would there be... Counsel, well, I guess that's... You, you've hit on the, the, the other nub of the issue. Why isn't that medical treatment? Is it because, in your view, of the superficiality of it? That's what I sort of hear you claiming. Yes. And that, in that sense, it is more like, like live guard. Is that... 
Is that yes, initially where it you're is. going? It is, Your Honor. It was, it was not something that was significant. He continued to play the statistics oh, but, that are part but, of the... Re I'm let sorry. me press you on that a little bit. Don't we have to look at the context? Because it seems to me LiveGuard talked about... The reason LiveGuard said that that was not medical treatment is because it was the aspirin was being provided for sort of, quote-unquote, common everyday afflictions or language to that effect. And I guess I'm wondering whether or not that's true here, given that we're talking about football, a very violent sport by, by its nature, and particularly for defensive linemen who are, as Mr. Noga was, using his head essentially as a battering ram, at least back then, before they were told not to do that. Um, and so what they were doing was, in that context, providing what was then acceptable treatment, arguably, for the resulting conditions, the headaches, the, that type of thing. Why, why isn't that treatment? I mean, it seems to me it's different than, than, than LiveGuard, where it was just the, the, the nurse on, on duty there for the employer. You almost get the impression she's just handing out aspirin to whoever who happens to walk in with a headache. Um, but that, that but doesn't there, seem to there be was this. a variety of treatment provided in the training room, some of which was, it was an open-door policy, and some of it which was treatment for work injuries, and some of it which wasn't. But they also had a team doctor, Dr. Fisher. And if they had significant problems or needed additional treatment, they would be treating with, with Dr. Fisher. And in fact, Mr. Noga did treat with Dr. Fisher. He treated with Dr. Fisher for a number of orthopedic ailments, and, Your Honor, he had preseason and postseason examinations, and never did he ever mention even anything with regard to a headache. There, again, there's one mention in one of the treat, training notes of a headache, but again, the, the, from a temporal standpoint, during that period of time, he had an even. There was a game the day before, and he was he was off because of an ankle injury. So um, our position is very similar to Dixon insofar as their. Uh, there was an alleged Gillette injury, but in our case, this treatment that he allegedly uh, received did not rise to the level of a medical bill or, and he had the opportunity to, to, to make a claim. He clearly did. He made several claims. And in fact, in 2001, when he filed a claim petition for all of those orthopedic injuries for which he received over $100,000 in a settlement, never was there anything ever pled with regard to concussions, head injury, and the like. And that is at the point in time when Dr. Froyan issued that report. But then, subsequently, um, over the next few ensuing years, he did proceed with regard to several claims. And he did become, in his mind, totally disabled and had compensable injuries. That's during the period of time when he was receiving treatment. And he filed for um, uh, various NFL uh, packages, and he also filed for Social Security disability. He deemed himself totally disabled all before 2009. And there was evidence of of issues with regard to dementia, which they called it back then. It's called neurocognitive disorder at this point. Counsel, let me take you back to the notice issue. As I understand your position on the notice issue, it's that Dr. Is it Froyan? Is that how you pronounce it? Froyan. Froyan. Yes. That the, the report that he attached to the settlement agreement uh, was not uh, noticed with, to, to the Vikings, in part because it really was about the orthopedic injuries, and then the, he makes these comments at the end about uh, the head trauma, the head injuries, and that Mr. Noga needs to be evaluated. Correct. 
I get that point, and, and I think there's some merit to your argument there. But I wonder, though, whether or not, uh, because our case law seems to suggest or says that it put you, the Vikings, on inquiry notice to, to look further. And so why weren't you, given the, as you characterize it, the terse statements from Dr. Froyan, why weren't you on inquiry notice to look further? Well, prior to that, I did take his deposition. And I did ask him if he had any prior injuries and he, during the period of time that he played. And he just said, yeah, I had concussions. But he just generally stated he had concussions. And I assumed it was during the period of time that he played football, you know, which was over the course of many years. Um, with regard to the inquiry notice, there was... You didn't ask further, given that you were taking the deposition? There was no claim a... pled, Your Honor, and that is not my burden. There was no claim pled at that time. And then subsequently, when we did settle the orthopedic claims via a stipulation for settlement, that report was attached. I had not seen that report before. And that report was attached, and it stated that he was also having blackouts, I believe, and some other headaches and some other issues with regard to football injuries. That's what he said. Counsel, let me ask. That's helpful. Thank you. I'm wondering, um, neither party cited this case, but I'm wondering whether you're familiar with the Fitch case from 1966. It was a... a um, uh, uh, workers' comp case, or excuse me, yeah, a workers' comp case, where two separate claims were filed, much as in this instance, and reports were attached. Um, and ultimately, what we held is that it was reasonable to infer that uh, the employer would have investigated and would have been on notice about those earlier uh, uh, medical reports that were, were filed. And your face tells me you would not. I don't know with that Fitch. case. Okay, I don't. Right. But what okay. I can tell you is that there were no earlier medical reports filed. What are you talking about prior to two thousand and four? Uh, I'm talking about with respect to his orthopedic claims that that you, given that Froyan's report was attached, the what Fitch says is essentially that you were. It was reasonable for the uh, court to assume that the employer had seen those documents. Well, it was attached to the stipulation for settlement, but the claim at that time was not with respect to any type of head injuries. And he had an attorney at that time. He never filed, nor did he file for another 11 years. So that is my question. Why didn't his attorney plead those additional injuries? Dr. Froyan mentioned that he should be, re he should be evaluated and at that point, I don't know why the employee wasn't evaluated, but he, he did have counsel. Thank you, and counsel. He could have your red light's on. You have 10 minutes yes. for rebuttal. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Wilson, and while you're making your way up here, I sh the record should reflect that Justice McKaig is recused from participation in this case. I just said Justice McKaig is recused. And it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. I read the sign indicating I need to adjust the podium. <laughs> Well, good morning. 
Uh, may it please the court. Uh, I'm Scott Wilson. Uh, seated on my right is Ray Peterson. Uh, together, uh, we represent the respondent uh, employee and former NFL defensive lineman, Al Noga. Uh, I'd like to start with the statute of limitations issue because I agree with counsel that it is the uh, most important issue uh, before the court. And Justice Anderson, I want to go directly to the question uh, that you asked of counsel, what cases support the employer's position uh, that uh, the treatment provided to Mr. Noga for his repeated concussions uh, uh, are not a proceeding? Counsel, uh, before you go to, the, to Justice Anderson's concern, sure. what, what is your client's position on the date the statute of limitations began to run? Is it 2004? Uh, yes, that is our position. Okay, it, and the case hasn't been pleaded as an occupational disease? No, it has not been pleaded as an occupational uh, disease case. And, and, and by the way, uh, my explanation for that is fairly straightforward. Uh, it, this is a case involving repeated blows to the head. Uh, and uh, those blows to the head, uh, according to substantial evidence in the record, resulted in repeated concussions. Eventually, that culminated in early-onset dementia. But that's trauma, uh, and, and that's why we pled this case uh, as, a, uh, as a traumatic injury case. Uh, getting back, though, uh, to your question, Justice Anderson, what, what cases support the employer's position with respect uh, to whether or not treatment provided between 1988 and 1992 can satisfy a statute of limitations that has not yet started to run? Uh, whatever cases may or may not support that position that the employer has taken, uh, Justice Dixon is not one of them. Uh, Dixon, and it's the only case that counsel argued to you, and it's pretty much the only case that they've argued in their briefing, Dixon is wholly an opposite. Uh, it does contain a temporal issue, but it has nothing to do with the question of whether or not a proceeding can occur at an earlier point in a Gillette injury that can satisfy a statute of limitations that starts to run at a later time. Dixon involves an argument that we absolutely do not make in this case. Uh, in Dixon, the employee argued that because the employer provided treatment for a latent condition that had not culminated yet, it therefore knew of the condition. Frankly, that's not a logical position. It's not a position that we take here. Uh, and it's a position that the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals rightly rejected. After it rejected that position, it then said in a brief paragraph, because there's uh, no knowledge, uh, and therefore no notice at the operative time, we don't need to reach the question of whether or not a proceeding occurred that satisfies what about, the What about LiveGuard, as the Chief Justice raises, and I guess they do mention it in their brief uh, as well. LiveGuard deals with medical bills, and I guess my first question would be, is the state of the law that we have never said, this court has never said, that a that medical treatment will either extend or vitiate, um, obviously there's some difference here about how the statute of limitation works, but either to toll it or otherwise vitiate the statute of limitations, we've never actually said that. We have said in LiveGuard that medical bills might. Am I, is that the correct state of the law? Uh, I believe it is. Uh, I don't think that it's a significant distinction. Uh, I, first of all, because, and by the way, I, I've got to ask once, is it Justice Thyssen? Thiessen. All right. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I think Justice uh, Thiessen's uh, uh, insight into Section 176.135 is 
uh, is pertinent. Uh, treatment is a benefit under the workers' compensation statute, and the rest of uh, the way that LiveGuard works unfolds from the provision uh, of, a, uh, of a benefit. If a benefit is provided, a proceeding occurs. If a proceeding occurs, the statute is satisfied. But doesn't LiveGuard suggest that we need to look at the reason the employer is providing the treatment? Is it, is it in recognition of liability, or is it because the employer has a profit motive and wants to make sure that their employees can do the job that the employer is paying them to do? I think in the real world, in the practical world, uh, uh, it would be difficult to separate those motivations. Uh, but I do agree with you, uh, Chief Justice, that, uh, that it is the motivation that matters under LiveGuard. And the standard under LiveGuard, as this court said in 1976, is whether or not the treatment is provided out of a conscious sense of obligation for a work-related injury. Now you take that look, clear law, that, as Justice Thiessen said, it goes back decades, even before uh, LiveGuard. You take that clear law, and the question in this case is how do we apply that to this animal, to a gradual onset injury, which is in reality a continuum of trauma? So to the, um, to the LiveGuard point, I go to page 11 of, I knew I'd, I'd read it somewhere, and I finally found it, um, of the reply brief filed by the employer, and the following language appears, and I'd like your reaction to, the, to this. Um, in this way, he, he, the employee, admits that from 1988 to 1992, concussions were considered to be temporary and minor, and as would be expected, concussion symptoms were treated as minor ailments at that time. They were treated similarly to LiveGuard as a minor ailment. How do you respond to that? Boy, we sure don't admit that. <laughs> that's, I'm not surprised. Yeah, but, anyway, uh, but, that, but, I, but I am interested in your response. I mean, well, it's, obviously it's, equating the, the minor ailment language in LiveGuard to what happened here, and you, I'd be interested in your response. Right. Uh, when I was six, I had a concussion. Uh, I was seen by a doctor. The doctor had specific advice from my parents uh, about how to care for me. It happened to be analgesics and rest. Uh, the fact that the medical profession didn't fully understand the significance of concussions, uh, and particularly the significance of concussions overlaid on concussions, which is really where the, uh, the danger exists, the fact that they didn't in understand that doesn't mean that concussions weren't understood as injuries uh, and, as serious, uh, and as serious matters, even if they were understood as temporary. All that we've admitted uh, and all that we mean to say, and all that Dr. Misukanis, our, our neuropsychologist, said, was that the inju injuries were understood as temporary. He never said, and we have never said, that they were minor. Uh, a concussion is a matter of some significance. It's always been understood that way. It's just that in the 1980s and the early 1990s, the treatment protocol was analgesics and rest. Um, what, what is the evidence that you're relying on that there was a conscious sense of obligation here? Uh, the nature of, of NFL football, I would say it's, it's not only uh, evidence, it does exist as evidence in this case, but it's also something uh, of which the court can take judicial notice. Uh, NFL football. Well, what did, what did the, um, what did the workers' compensation judge, what, what evidence in the workers' compensation judges opinion, his, his, uh, the, the judge's findings of fact, supports the conclusion that there was a conscious or the finding that there was a conscious sense of obligation here? Well, there's a, there's a specific quote um, 
Let me see if I can if I can find it. Yeah, it's right at the end of the compensation judge's uh, uh, memorandum. He says, quote, and this is at Respondent's Addendum, page 4, this medical staff is paid by the employer to treat injuries. In the employee's case, this, meaning analgesics and rest, is how they chose to do so. Uh, it is to some extent a point of evidence because we've got extensive testimony from uh, Mr. Noga uh, and secondarily from neuropsychologist Ms. Akanis, uh, that, uh, that the treatment occurred. But I think it's more simply a point in common sense. Let, let, counsel, let me ask your, uh, I understand your, your argument with respect to National Football League, but let me, let me expand it a little bit here. And uh, what I'm concerned about are the follow-on effects of the rule that you'd have us adopt today. Um, we do have workers' compensation coverage for employees who are involved in many difficult and dangerous occupations. Uh, and it seems to me the rule that you would have us adopt is an employee who um, provides medical treatment or any time an employee seeks medical treatment um, for complaints that are contemporaneous with work the work environment, the statute of limitations is going to be told or vitiated, whatever, whatever analysis we arrive at there. Uh, the statute of limitations no longer exists as a practical matter. Um, is that right or wrong? And if not, if it is wrong, tell me why. Well, I think I think first of all that it's that it's correct when we're dealing with a gradual onset injury, when we're dealing with the reality of a gradual onset work injury. I do think it's important that we recognize, as this court has in past decisions that what's happening here is the statute is being satisfied. It's not being told. And, and that matters because it takes the consternation out. Uh, tolling is a temporal uh, consideration. If you're so, satisfied so I'm, statute, a, so I'm a lineman, and in the process of doing lineman work, I uh, complain to my employer that my back hurts, and they say, well, um, why don't you just, you know, sit down, uh, you know, take the afternoon off or whatever, and I come back to work the next day. Uh, has, has the statute of limitations now been satisfied? I don't think so, because I think that's LiveGuard. I think, uh, I think that that is uh, an employer interacting with a minor ailment. Uh, here, uh, what you've got is a series of concussions, recognized injuries, and you have a, a, a business enterprise, an NFL football team, that knows it's in the business of putting players in harm's way and has a team orthopedist and a team of trainers and an elaborate uh, uh, training room facility that's there to address the predictable and sometimes serious, even career-ending injuries that occur on the football field. So, so it's there's not no like statute of limitations for... Um for football is kind of what the argument then becomes. What I'm saying and, is... And, that and maybe that's the correct answer. I'm not suggesting it isn't, but, but isn't that the logical implication from where you, where you go with this? I think under these facts, you're looking at a statute that is satisfied and that therefore no longer interacts with the case from a legal perspective. So as a practical matter, I don't want to resist you too strenuously, Justice. As a practical matter, yes, you're right, but you're right because what's happening is the logical application of established law under LiveGuard so to this kind of an injury. So, counsel, that then would apply to maybe there's no statute of limitations for contact sports, because it seems to me your uh, position would also apply to hockey players 
potentially. Um, maybe soccer players who are doing headers or whatever they call that. I'm not a soccer fan, but you get what I'm getting at. I mean, if it's I, a contact I, sport, is that? I do, and, and if I can respond, again, I don't want to push back too hard on this, but it isn't that there's no statute of limitations. That's why the distinction between tolling and satisfaction matters. It looks... Oh, but maybe, if the statute of limitations is always satisfied, the statute of limitations effectively doesn't exist. I'll grant you that as and, a... And, I mean, I'm really concerned about how do you draw the line? I mean, how can we say, well, this is just a rule for contact sports? I mean, there are plenty of dangerous professions out there, mm -hmm. law enforcement, and there are plenty of professions where maybe it doesn't seem dangerous, but you're on the assembly line and you're, con you're doing this repetitive thing and it's constant. And do we really want to incent employers to not provide um, in-house medical treatment? Because every time they do, the statute of limitations is out the window. I don't think you want to incentivize employers to not provide treatment, and I don't think that you do. Uh, I do want to come back to your question, which is really the same as yours, uh, Chief Justice, uh, which is what's the rule here? The rule that comes out of this case will only apply to uh, instances of cumulative trauma in a Gillette scenario, uh, scenario where the treatment is provided out of a conscious sense of obligation for something that injured somebody in the workplace. That is a, a rule of fairly narrow application. And well, counsel, can I actually follow up with something? You just made me think of something else. I, I wonder, help me with this, I wonder whether or not, even if we assume that the Vikings consciously intended to provide treatment for the individual concussions that were going on, can we, I'm not sure that we can also say that they had that same intent and that same, um, well, that same intent with respect to the ultimate injury, with respect to his dementia. Does that matter? Or I'm trying to figure out how that plays out yeah. because that, that seems to me, and they could not have possibly known um, I Given think, what you just told us, and, right. and I think what I said earlier about the state of what we knew about concussions, and they could not have possibly known. I think that's the, the key legal point here, uh, is when you have an employer who's treating uh, a stop on the, on the train's route towards the culmination of a, uh, of a Gillette injury, uh, uh, what is the employer treating? Is the employer... Uh, is the employer treating something that has nothing to do with the ultimate injury, or is the, is the employer treating a part of the injury? I, I would say, in all honesty, uh, that the employer is treating a part of the injury. And the question then is simply, are they treating that injury out of a conscious sense of obligation for it? And I think clearly, in the case of the Minnesota Vikings, interacting with a player who is receiving repeating hits to the head and says he has headaches and wooziness, uh, they're providing that treatment out of a conscious sense of obligation. So following up on that, it, it seems to... <laughs> it seems to, to Justice yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. It, it, following up on that, it, and maybe this was Justice Thiessen's initial point, it seems to me that what you're saying is that is the nature of Gillette injuries. And unless this court is prepared to... Um, clarify in some way, I don't want to use the overrule word, but overrule or do something different or otherwise limit, try to cabin Gillette injuries in some way, then it kind of is what it is? That is exactly my position. Uh, my position is that 
uh, we're not in the skinny branches with LiveGuard here. We're, we're standing very close to the trunk of the tree. All we're doing is applying LiveGuard in a logical way to a gradual onset injury. Counsel, here's the logical problem I have. Um, you began the oral argument with my question asking when the statute of limitations started to run, and you said 2004. The parties are in agreement on that. Normally, tolling applies after a statute of limitations begins to run. Mm -hmm. So there, if the statute started to run in 2004, then what told the statute between then and January of 2015 um, when the claim petition was filed, none of the treatment by the Vikings occurred in that time frame. Yes. So it sounds to me like you're advocating sort of a, it's, it's actually the opposite of retroactive tolling. It'd be prospective, prospective tolling. Yeah, except, except and, and again, can, I, can, I, you, I, can you cite any case where we, we have recognized prospective tolling or uh, moving, moving tolling from one time period into the period of the running of the statute of limitations. Yeah. And when you I, answer that question, can you tell me why 2004 is the date? I mean, that just doesn't square with the, with the statute that says it has to be six years from the injury. I don't understand why everybody's agreeing it's 2004. Right. Uh, uh, let me answer Justice Lillehog's question, and let me come uh, directly to, to the question about why 2004. Uh, so... I feel like you've dragged me feet first back to something that I, uh, that I, that I felt like I belabored, uh, which, is that, uh, which is that there is no tolling occurring. Uh, so first of all, to answer your, your last question, there's no case where this court has said that a statute of limitations uh, was, could be prospectively tolled unless it's Livgard, because I think this is a very short hop from Livgard, where we are uh, right now. Uh, but what this court has said, and I'm looking for the for the case law, is that counsel uh, isn't it Rollmelt? Isn't it our it's decision Rome in Rollmelt yeah, that it says it's not tolling? That's not it, what we're do what we're doing. Right. Uh, in Rollmelt, yeah. this court looked at this doctrine and went back to the Minen case in 1969 and uh, and said that really tolling was never at the bottom of the analysis. It was always satisfaction uh, uh, of the statute. So the question then is, uh, is can the statute be satisfied prospectively? And uh, I certainly will acknowledge the, the temporal issue. Can you satisfy a statute before it starts to run? But it seems to me that that is the direct logical outcome of LiveGuard. If provision of treatment under section 176.135 uh, is, uh, is a benefit, and if a benefit is a proceeding, and if a proceeding uh, uh, satisfies the statute, as it clearly does under 176.151, then you have the prospective uh, satisfaction of a statute of limitations. Well, that, that helps me, but it, and I now understand probably the answer to my question as to when the statute began to run. You should have just said it never began to run. Well, and you know what? That may be true. I, the, uh, the standard for the running of the statute to, to respond to your question, Justice Thiessen. Uh, the, the, uh, the scienter standard, uh, the, the knowledge standard for the running of the statute uh, occurs in 2004 because that's when the employee takes the 2004 report of Dr. Fruan, which yes, does itemize a whole series of orthopedic injuries, but also specifically says, this employee is complaining of headaches, this employee is complaining of blackouts, 
uh, and uh, they are from his play with the Minnesota Vikings, and I recommend that he get a neurological consult for those problems. That gave everybody... Counsel, did he say, though, in that report... I'm sorry, you should... Well, that, I think you probably know where I'm going. That's why that would be the starting date for the statute if, to give Justice Lillehog's uh, point its due, uh, if it had not already been satisfied. Well, and, and, and frankly, the, the, just this, two, two quick things. This, this notion that if you have some kind of injury and then it evolves into something else later with regard to the statute of limitations, I mean, that's a very, that's a very unusual situation in workers' comp cases where someone makes a claim, I have a back injury, they get resolved, and then they can come in 10 years later and say this back injury has gotten a lot worse, and you can continue to get benefits because the statute of limitations was told by that first initiation and what we're saying with this line of cases is that just getting medical benefits is enough to kind of start that. You don't have to have the knowledge of the dementia, you just have to have the knowledge of the concussions. That's a pretty, un that's not a very surprising result. So I, I think that that's in line with that. But my question is, the, the, the Vikings argument is, the injury here is this Gillette injury that was cumul accumulated or that ended in December 1st, 1992 but you're relying on stuff that happened before 1992. And is the answer to that that even though the Gillette injury culminated in 1992, the concussions, the hits, actually happened before that, and we should be looking to those events as opposed to the 1992 culmination? We should be looking to those events for what purpose? For Well, there's, their, their argument is basically, one of their arguments is that you can't start the statute of limitations running before the injury even occurred, and they're mm. defining the injury occurring with the December 1st, 1992, you know, that's what the court found. And they found that there weren't these, you know, they couldn't put a date on other injuries, right? Right. But is your argument that those other injuries, even though they can't put a date on it, we know that they occurred, and so the medical treatment that goes to treat that, even though it didn't culminate till 1992, is sufficient to be a proceeding? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it comes back to the to, to the uh, to the fundamental legal question before the court, and and I think Justice Lillehog, to your uh, conceptual difficulty, what's being treated? If uh, if my client's early onset dementia at, in his mid fifties was caused by a series of concussions that he sustained during the, his five years at the Vikings and during his entire twenty year football career, and the Vikings provided treatment. Uh, for those concussions, what were they treating? Uh, were they just treating an isolated temporary occurrence or were they treating a part of the entire injury? I think that, uh, that a Gillette injury is unitary and they're don't, treating the counsel, injury. Don't the difficulty we have to, arises with the whole concept of Gillette. Don't we have to know or don't, doesn't your client have to show that they understood that that's what they were doing, that there was an intention that that's what they were doing, that they were treating the the whole injury? I don't think so, because the standard doesn't go to my client's uh, knowledge. It goes to, the standard for whether there's a proceeding goes to uh, the employer's intent. Uh, that's what I'm asking. Don't, don't, how, do, how do I know, how do we know from this record that that intent by the employer was demonstrated? That's what I'm asking. Oh, yeah, and again, I, I think it, my honest perception is the same as that of the compensation judge. Uh, the uh, uh, the Vikings, like every other NFL football team, has in place a team physician 
and a team of uh, experienced trainers who are there to deal with injuries, often serious, that occur on the football field. Concussion is one of those, and it was one of those in, in between 1980 and, 19, and 1992. So that treatment is being provided uh, through a conscious sense of obligation for injuries that are occurring in a football game when you're dealing with a football player in the workplace. There is one thing that I want to ask. One other question: Does it does yes. it matter? I'm going back back now to Dr. Froyan's report. Um, does it matter in terms of notice to to the employer that he was not specific? He said he said he was there were issues concerning football injuries, but he wasn't specific as to the Vikings. And of course, we know that Mr. Noga played. At least I don't recall that. Is year. this Dr. Froyan? In the I'm 2004 sorry. report? Yes, yes. He did say the Vikings. Yes, he did. Yeah, I noticed that specifically. Okay. Counsel, what if we can't tell the employer's motivation? Well, I, I'll be, and this is the last thing I get to say because I'm blinking red. Uh, uh, I think that's our burden to establish that, uh, quite honestly. And so I think if I don't establish that, I lose, but I think that I have. Thank you, Counsel. Right. Um, Ms. Helgren, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Your Honor, could you repeat your question? What was your question? What, what if we can't determine? Oh, so I was asking. Some, one of my colleagues earlier asked counsel where in the record did the compensation judge make a finding about the reason, the employer's motivation for providing the Advil and the Tylenol, whatever it was back in the late 80s. And I looked at that provision in the compensation judge's order, and, and, and so I was asking counsel, what if we can't tell? What if the record doesn't tell us what the employer's motivation was for providing the medical care it provided. Correct. Um, if you accept the premise that LiveGuard requires that the employer have a certain motivation in doing that, what do we do if we can't tell what the employer's motivation was? And I think in this case we can't tell because there is no documentation. There is none. And clearly the employee has the burden in this case. And with regard to... Um, with regard to the other injuries, he clearly filed other injuries. He knew how to do that, and he did file orthopedic claims. Counsel, so, I'm looking at the, what I think is the key passage in LiveGuard, and it distinguishes between um, comp, a form of compensation, medical care, to an employee suffering from a work-related injury, and it contrasts to that a general service provided to all employees who suffer from minor ailments of whatever nature and origin. So I have two questions. Did everyone other than the football, uh, did the employees other than the football players get the benefit of the trainers? And is a concussion a minor ailment? And was it considered to be a minor ailment at the time? What was your first time? question, I'm sorry? Did all the employees, not just the football players, get the benefit of the trainers dispensing Tylenol and ibuprofen? I, I don't have the answer Okay, to that that's not, not in the record. and. It was, was concussion viewed in, 19, in 1988 to 92 as a minor ailment? Well, I, I can't answer that question either because back then there were certain protocols and we, we don't really know exactly 
what the protocol was back then. We have Dr. Misukanis, who's uh, the expert on behalf of the employee, who indicates that, that the protocol, such as what Mr. Noga talked about, um, was the protocol, but we really don't have, we really don't know what it was. But the point there, there being was that- a, There was a concussion protocol for football players who, as they put it back then, got their bell rung. Yeah, I, I can't, honestly, I can't say. And all I know is that there was treatment well, available for him. And he did take advantage of, take advantage of treatment that was available uh, for him. But with regard to his orthopedic injuries and the use of the training room, and there is documentation that if he had issues, he treated. He did treat with Dr. Fisher. The records show that. But he never mentioned anything about getting his bell rung or concussions, and he didn't, he wasn't losing time from games. I mean, the, if, if in fact he had concussion, a concussion back then, he would have symptoms. He would have significant symptoms that would impede him being able to play, correct? I think Well, the record would. tells us that he missed work one day because of a headache, but that's all we know, right? But the day before there was a game and he wasn't, he didn't play in that game because of an ankle injury, which was reported. Well, I, I, I mean, I played football at a very much lower level in the 1980s. We got concussions all the time and kept playing. I mean, that, I don't think that you're correct about the state of the situation back then. Well, there's nothing in the evidence that reveals that he received any treatment. No medical bills were paid. Nothing. There's did, nothing in the contemporaneous So treatment, ha treatment has to be by someone other than the employer? Not necessarily. No, they had a team physician, and there's nothing documented in Dr. Fisher's records whatsoever. No requests for referrals. And in fact, he, he didn't treat until 2004 when his attorney sent him to see Dr. Froyan. That's the first time that he treated for any of these complaints. So treatment has to be by a, a doctor? There's other forms of treatment, but, but what he's arguing is that giving of Tylenol, Advil, or Advil and lying down is treatment, and we do not believe that that is treatment, and we do not believe that there was a proceeding that occurred that satisfied the statute of limitations. So, Counsel, what, I'm, what I am hearing you say, and I think you and I had this, this discussion earlier, your, your um, issue is with the, the um, that this isn't substantial treatment. It has to be substantial treatment in some way. Because what I'm hearing you say to Justice Thiessen is, you are acknowledging that these trainers, the Vikings trainers and staff, could have provided treatment. Treatment did not does not have to come from the hospital or from a you know in that setting. But what your uh, issue is is what, the substantiality of what is happening. That's correct. And in Myers, the training staff did provide treat, significant treatment. For example, they they prepared this special cast that he wore when he played and and taping and splinting and all of that. And I just find it very difficult, Your Honor, to accept the fact that Mr. Noga was having such significant issues and was having multiple concussions during the period of time that he played for the Vikings, um, and yet there's nothing, but, there's but nothing is, but documented. Counsel, isn't that a function, or couldn't that be a function? And I feel like maybe we're kind of going around the same thing, but isn't that a function of the fact that at the time 
there was no protocol, even though these were concussions, there was no, there was not the protocol we have today. But there still should, he still was, ha if he was having significant issues, he still should have told the company doctor and they would have done something for him. Well, because counsel, if you're having. Uh, but uh, isn't there a finding of fact from the comp judge on this point? That the comp judge found as credible Mr. Noga's statements that he reported headaches and dizziness to the team trainers and to, or to the team doctor, both on the sidelines during a game and after the game. They made treatment recommendations. He was told to lie or rest in the, in the training room. I mean, don't we have to accept all those findings as true? But you also have to look at all the facts in the case and in the transcript, Your Honor, and those also show unreliability and inconsistencies because there were times that he was asked so specifically. So you're, you're, you're arguing the comp judge's finding is clearly erroneous? or lacks, is not substantial evidence? Yes, and he okay. clearly testified as well that there were times that he did not mention to anyone about any symptoms he had because he was an NFL player and he didn't want to lose his playing position. And so there are many inconsistencies in, in the record. If you review that, both, if you review the first transcript, he did not testify the Co second counsel, time. Counsel, what are we to do with Dr. Misukanis' testimony? Because he, he opined to a reasonable degree of certainty that Noga did suffer uh, concussions while playing for the Vikings. And he, he talked about how you don't have to have a loss of consciousness to have had a concussion. And he, he talked about um, the physical impact of the lineman and, and the head first kind of playing that Noga did. That's, that was all accepted by the comp judge. I understand. And the question then becomes, if he in fact did have a Gillette injury, which culminated in December of 1992, then where is the ascertainable event? Where is it? There's no evidence at all that he ever lost any time. There's no evidence that he had to stop playing football. There's no medical evidence that he sought any well, Counsel, we have There's a no number of cases, counsel, though, that have said that we can uh, pin the ascertainable event, if you will, or that say that the operative date is the last day of Correct. employment. Correct. And those so cases... So why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we follow well, that? Well, there's a number of cases which are cited in our brief and cited by the employee's attorney as well, but in our brief as well. In most of those cases, if you review them very closely, you will see that if, like, they were economically laid off or it was the last day they worked, but within a short period of time, those individuals received treatment and those cases all were specific injuries, not Gillette injuries. All of them. So, I'm sorry? And the significance of that is? Well, the significance is that when you have a Gillette injury, you need an ascertainable event to, have, to occur, a culmination date. And, and we don't have any facts to, to support, a, really, to support a Gillette injury occurred. And there is a difference between a Gillette injury and a specific injury. And the judge in this case, all, you, there were some questions earlier about the fact that, well, you know, aren't we really dealing with someone who had a number of injuries and then led up to a Gillette injury? Well, in our case, he did plead all those specific injuries, and the compensation judge denied all of them, and that was not appealed. And I just would like to end with regard to... Um, the position, we talked a lot about the statute of limitations. There's public policy reasons why the legislature enacted the statute of limitations, and we can't abrogate that today. We have to follow the statute. And in this case, the statute was not 
satisfied or told or whatever wording you want to use. I believe this court prefers the word uh, um, that it's satisfied. It was not satisfied in this case. And what happened in this case is that the employee in 1992 claims an injury in 2004, claims that he, he had noticed 12 years after the injury, and in 2015 claims that he's entitled to be able to file a workers' compensation claim, 23 years after he last played for the Vikings. And we would ask that the court reverse the determination of the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals. This is mental gymnastics here. He clearly did not file his claim in a timely fashion, and his claim should be denied in full. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. I'll